All right, everybody. Alex Shaw with the uh, Risk Matters podcast. I've got an, a great guest this morning. Uh, ben Moore is a uh, is a Richmond, or I should say, Ashland, Virginia native. How you doing, Ben? Pretty good. Pretty good. It's nice to nice to be out here in the morning. Yes, it is. Um, so, Ben, we're doing a series about performing in the risk, and um, you know our president Hutch Mock, and he and I ran into each other in the hall the other day, and. And we're talking about you, and 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 we thought, man, that guy has got a lot of interesting stories, um, born of just the experiences he's he's created to a large degree over his life. And so I thought, uh, be a good idea to get you in. And uh, as a, as a fellow waterman, um, I'm particularly intrigued to just hear maybe from inception to where you are today, a little bit about your life, a little bit about your experience with uh, water, with white water, with sailing surfing competition um the growth the 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 places that you've fallen short and learned from and and everything in between so uh are you ready for that i i'm I'm (laughs) as ready as i'm gonna be yeah Yeah, so that was a mouthful um (laughs) so maybe yeah if you wouldn't mind sharing with people a little bit about yourself where you where you got your start and um and we'll go from there yeah i guess it, it started off with just like i don't remember a time that i wasn't really drawn to water in an intrinsic way something that you know as a kid you can't really you can't really put words to but I, I like things that were were uh uh obvious to my my parents were were when my sister and I were asked where we wanted to go on like a weekend vacation or something my sister would always want to go to the mountains and I always want to go to the beach uh when we would go to the mountains like uh I w- I didn't want to go on any hikes unless they had like a stream crossing or like around a lake or something like that other if it was just like hiking in the woods I was bored with it so the age old question of pirates or ninjas you uh, would d- answer no question yeah it's not even a question pirates of course <laughs> uh, um yeah get to live on a boat and travel around the world um yeah, so, uh, yeah, I was uh, I was raised in Ashland. Uh, my my parents were living on the west coast when my sister and I were born. But uh, most of my my uh, memories come from come from a Virginia based life. Uh, raised in Ashland, did a lot of like canoeing uh, in Virginia. Very very young age, camping, canoeing. My my family had a small sloop. Uh, so we did some sailing in the uh, Rappahannock River Yacht Club. Shout out to those guys. Um, uh, sailed sunfish there, sailed uh, our, uh, our, our sloop around there. Um, my mom has some family in Virginia beach. So, uh, we, uh, we go down there and sort of learn how to surf. Um, you know, good old Virginia beach, outer bank shore break, just getting face planted into the sand over and over again. Yeah. First, first street jetty, uh, snaking people. Is that where you learn to cut yep, people yep. off and steal waves? Exactly. Yeah. Stealing waves, getting in fights with other little groms when, cause you're not <laughs> from there. And yeah. <laughs> That's uh that 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 whole first street scene back in the in the nineties. Um, yeah, uh, that that extended to I, I don't know. I wasn't going to be a pro surfer as much as I wanted to, and so uh, when when I uh, started, I trained as a raft guide uh, a couple of years out of high school, and uh, realized I could make money doing that. And I was like, well, this is this seems to be something that 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 I can continue this lifestyle for a while. And then, then, uh, I, I, I was able to just you know, kind of fell in my lap. I, I, I was, uh, I, I learned the, I learned Norwegian and, uh, for, I was dating a Norwegian girl. She, she was nice enough to, to teach me Norwegian. 
and I started applying to uh, raft shops in in Norway uh, after watching lots of lots of whitewater videos of like just like epic 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 whitewater world class whitewater in just Norway. Just VHSs from Blockbuster or Pretty Hollywood or yeah uh, yeah 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 like the VHSs they get you know get like passed down from like mo- most of the people who were making those videos were like out of like Asheville North Carolina. And uh, and Colorado, but you know, like they're like making two or three videos a year, and you like one of your buddies gets one mailed to him, and you all sit around and watch it, and you're like, oh my gosh, those those waterfalls are crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but that was the that was how how that kind of those words spread back in the day. But uh, um, yeah, I got I just got this random uh, raft company that I applied to every raft company I could find on the internet in 2004. So those of you who who used the proto internet in 2004? You can imagine that you know it wasn't a there wasn't like Facebook businesses or like a good Google like business setup where I could just like search for raft companies. And I had to like do all this legwork and like the the difference. I, I remember looking at different sites and being like, "Is there an email here? Like, I can't I can't even read this stuff very well." But my my girlfriend helped me uh, write a resume in Norwegian, which was which was funny. I wrote it and then she you know corrected it for grammar. Yeah. Um, and, and this, this, uh, this guy, Hansi, uh, in a place called, uh, shock, uh, was like, yeah, sure. It's a, you know, good resume. You're learning Norwegian and you're American. I've never even heard of that before. <laughs> and, and so I, I got the okay and ended up spending eight years, uh, eight seasons out there, uh, some shorter, some most of the year between 2004 and 2012, uh, paddling out there, running a running a raft shop, and uh, in between those, got to travel around uh, to different parts of Europe, guide there. Um, a lot of time spent in Central and South America, guiding different places, uh, and a and a, a little bit of time in New Zealand. But yeah, mainly, I mean, Nor- Norway was or Shock specifically was my second home, and it's a it's a beautiful beautiful place. Um, yeah, it's a, if you ever have a chance to go to Norway, definitely. Definitely go to Shock and see uh, uh, one of the guys who I guide with, uh, guided with, uh, Uva Ove, at uh, the uh, tourist home up in uh, in uh, Um Anyway, you can get in touch with Alex and ask him specifically. But yeah, it's a it's a cool spot up there in the mountains. Yeah. Well, when so when you came, so when you initially went to Norway, what was the rafting and whitewater scene like at that time? If I recall correctly, it was is somewhat limited um, or. or you talking about like in Norway specifically or That's here? right. Yeah. Yeah, Norway. it was I mean, it's it, I guess like they they in the 90s when when that industry was like really really just like the growth rate was huge uh the you know like there was like that late 90s there was like 15 20 companies in West Virginia, you know, like that that's when it was spreading oh, kind of right. all over chaos. the world. Yes. And so uh there was a company that started in uh, in shock in, I think it was like 97 or something like that. I obviously I wasn't there for it, but like, uh, this was in 2004, Hansi was starting the second company. It was, it was a branch of that one that had started in 97 Mm. and he, he was breaking off. He was a climbing guide that like to be specific about it. He was a climbing guide for the other company. Didn't for whatever reason, uh, you know, wasn't seeing eye to eye with his, with the people who own the company and started his own thing um, and needed uh, whitewater folks. So that's how I just lucked into that spot. <laughs> and what, yeah. What did, uh, what did whitewater like risk management look like in 2004 and even beforehand? Like, I mean, I'm thinking of equipment, gear, 
uh, the language people spoke. I mean, I mean, you know, like the jargon people used um, versus the progression you've seen in yourself and in the industry today. Um, wow, that's a that's a good question. It's when you're living inside of it, it's very hard to like look at those those uh, exterior perspectives and say, what was I doing differently as far as like risk management back then that I'm doing now? There obviously are some, and I would say that that. Just because I was still, you know, relatively new, I was three years in. Uh, I, I think there's been a lot more change in myself over the last twenty years, obviously, than in an industry that was uh, realistically, you know, starting in the fifties and sixties and really coming to fruition, you know, coming of age in the in the nineties and then you know plateauing or whatever during that time. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I, I guess um, things like something that your your you know your head goes to directly uh, when you're when you're talking about risk management in white in in whitewater is like what your personal gear is so like just right off the top of my head the two things that I'm thinking of are like what I carry in my PFD um you know your, your life jacket that's that's a big thing if you look at like old school life jackets I remember when I trained I was wearing one of those ones that has those big vertical panels uh <laughs> yeah. that they go yeah. up and down and it's like totally it's completely not comfortable it's it's like you, you can't rotate your torso all the way around back it's just it's just this huge like straight jacket thing and i thought it was the coolest thing ever you know it's bright yellow and i was i thought that i was you know i was the man with this my, i had my own life jacket when i trained and now i mean the 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 standard the just the straight up standard now is is comfort if you're not if if uh, I, I think something that's going on with that specific part of the industry, the people who are making life jackets, if you're not going to wear a life jacket, then it's not going to work. And so like those mm-hmm. Mae West horseshoe jackets, uh, uh, like no one wears that, you know, that's not a thing anymore. If you look at old, like uh, Grand Canyon pictures from like the seventies, people are still wearing those things. No one wears that because it's uncomfortable. You can't convince people to wear it. So everything's made with the foam paneling, like around your torso in a way that allows you to move and isn't, isn't obstructive to your movement. So I'd say that's, that's one thing that, that has uh, not changed as much from 2004 till now as it did from like the fifties to that time frame, Mm. but, but, uh, uh, has changed a lot. Another thing, uh, specifically, uh, helmets, you know, another thing that's on your body helmets. Um, in the 20 years that I've been doing this, it, uh, right, right as I was getting in, there was the, there was this new idea that the helmet needed to have like multiple layers of foam and then plastic and then foam and then plastic because an impact needed to spread out through the foam, hit the next layer of hard plastic and spread out through more foam before, uh, if you can kind of think of like hockey helmets where it's like one layer of plastic and then, and then foam on the inside that works to a certain extent, but to really, really get the, whatever the, the, the force of the impact is to spread out before it is impacting your skull. It helps to have like multiple layers. So it spreads out quickly. And now, uh, WRSI, uh, sweet, I would say those are the two kind of leaders in, in the helmet game. They, uh, I mean, they're, they're looking at like, uh, four, five, sometimes different layers of, of different densities of foam and plastic to, to really, really dissipate the, mm. the force of the hit. So that, and then also uh, with going back to PFDs, things that like things you carry in your PFD, uh, um, it, it's much more modular than it used to be. Uh, the PFDs have 
a, a lot of uh, like a, a like a rescue PFD, a, a working PFD, not what a customer is going to wear, but what you do as a professional has a lot of capacity for you know things that are super super useful. A couple extra carabiners, some uh, some some line that used to be twenty years ago carried around your waist, which provides a snag hazard. Now can be carried inside of the PFD. Um, but yeah, it just make you know kind of like adding bells and whistles that are are useful, not just you know, bells and whistles that look nice. Hmm. When you were in, uh, so one of the things that you said early on a minute ago was, was it, it triggered a thought in my head about there's, there really is no shortage of the ability to create capacity to fail safely, like in the development of PPE. So, but the question is, is there, does it, does it conflict with operations? Like in our world, you see a lot of um, yeah, you know, we've got these safety glasses, but they fog up all the time and so potentially create a hazard. And even if they don't, it irritates the people who are supposed to be wearing them when it's hot outside, so they ultimately take them off. So what's the next layer of, of you know, evolution that we can create to avoid that? And, and, and companies have done that. You know, they've, they've created foam liners that have holes in them to try to offset some of that risk. Um, I think the PPE development is interesting, or or the gear is you know personal protective equipment or gear development is interesting because there's only in my mind so much that you can uh, engineer or just like create out of nothingness. Uh, what's cool about like uh, the development in the whitewater developments in the whitewater world and in the risk performance world is that it's mostly born of experience, right? You don't know about consequences that haven't happened yet, and most of the accidents we see, or many of them, you couldn't dream up. And so the ability to Monday morning quarterback is, um, at least for some of the, the folks who are really thinking ahead about these things, they tend not to, to Monday morning quarterback incidents and accidents that happen because what, what they say is, you know, every accident is preventable when you're looking backwards. But when you're looking forwards, it's really hard to anticipate some of these things. You couldn't make these things up. And so the development of more modular uh, PFDs where you can keep rope and carabiners and your whistle and, and even a little small throw bag and, and um, you know, all sorts of other additions is really born of, from what I would guess, people having an experience where, oh, they had the rope around their waist and it got caught. Um, or you had a carabiner attached to you and you fell off the raft, you know, raft and it hooked onto the chicken rope and you get a guide stuck upside down. So what do we do to grow and develop from that? Can you remember any experiences specifically whether it was in Norway or otherwise where you had a close call or a near miss and it 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 impacted the way you thought about r- performing in the risk on a move forward basis? Uh, yeah, definitely one that just just popped into my head when you started saying that uh, <laughs> was so so. Anytime you carry a line in water, you carry a knife. Also, no question, uh, you, a line is actually a, a dangerous thing to have. Um, it's it's a necessity, but it, it once it's deployed. It, there, there's like a sliding scale of like how quickly it becomes dangerous. A, a line and, in water is always dangerous. You can't. And you mean a line in terms of like a rope? So a rope. if somebody yeah, needs to rescue, so yeah, you yeah. throw them a bag that's got a rope packed into it. You hold onto one end. The bag launches towards them with most of the weight of the rope, and it, and it, and it comes unfurled as it projects through yeah. the air. Yeah. And then hopefully you hit them. And you don't keep the carabiner on the bag because then you get summer teeth. Yep. Some are in the uh, raft. Some are in the river. <laughs> yep. Some are in your mouth. That's true. Yeah. So, so yeah, so you always, 
uh, anytime that you're carrying a rope, a line, you you always carry a knife because you need to be able to extract whatever gets tangled up in that in that uh in that line if it does get tangled up line. So that's just like without question. If you have a if you have a rope with you and you don't have a knife, like what are you doing? Um, uh, so that that uh begs the uh, that kind of goes into you know the next thing of like uh gear R and D. You know, there's there's lots of nice river knives that are expensive and get lost and get need to need to be replaced and that gets expensive. So I, I remember specifically in Norway, some of the some of the guides were like using their they're using like kitchen knives, like you know, like a little <laughs> steak knife. A serrated edge on line is really really good. It goes through it quickly. Like it's much better than a smooth edge. So you know, a little steak knife actually works well, but you have to be able to carry that safely. And so they, I remember seeing some really, really kind of like wild setups to be able to carry this like steak knife that you got out of your kitchen because you don't feel like buying like a $90 river knife over and over and over again. Right. Um, and Been so, there. The, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, kind of standard model that we would see uh, different iterations of art was uh, some type of cardboard, maybe like a toilet paper roll or like a paper towel tube that you would cut open and cover in duct tape to give it a little bit of waterproofing <laughs> and then fold back closed again and wrap more duct tape around it to give it, you know, some, some, some size to be able to, to somehow keep in your, your PFD or whatever. Anyway, that, that you'd see this, you know, these, these things that would slowly deteriorate as they got wet and uh, that they'd be either, you know, in some pocket or attached directly to the outside with like a zip tie or something onto onto the, the front of your PFD, somewhere easy to access the knife because that's what you want to be able yep. to access it quickly. And so anyway, this one of my buddies uh, on a trip, he was, a, he was ahead of me on this trip. We were going through Volongen, which is a rapid that's like right down in the middle of, of town, right through Schalk. And it, uh, there's a big, there's a, a wave there called the shock wave. And it's it, right afterwards, kind of the end of the rapid. And so big open water afterwards. So you could take the hit as hard as you wanted. You know, you could just run through it and like throw people out, you know, flip the boat, whatever. And see what, see what the shock wave did, because there's a lot of room to just kind of clean up the pieces afterwards. Not a lot of uh, consequence after that. Anyway, he, he dropped in, hit, hit it really hard and was projected into the, to his customers, right, right, right in front of him <laughs> and hit the customers, you know, like they, which is common, you know, yeah. you kind of like bump into each other if you're in a raft and he, uh, he, he sat back up and I remember him telling me I was, I was in a raft behind him. So I didn't actually see this, but I remember him telling the story afterwards uh, around the fire at night, not with the customers, but you know, just with us, he was like, looked down at himself, realized that he had, he had dropped his river knife, AKA steak knife. Couldn't, I was like, where, where is it? And he looked back up and there was a, steak knife halfway buried into the back of the person's <laughs> PFD in front of him. And he had like the, the customer had no idea what had just happened and how close they, they were to uh, maybe going to the, uh, the emergency room. Uh, that's a, that's a legitimate like, near miss. Yeah. Very, very much a near miss. He'd pulled it out of the PFD, put it back in the holder and I guess said about R and D something different that wasn't going to eject into someone's uh, back as easily. <laughs> So that kind of, you know, your comment about sitting around the campfire and unpacking the day's activities, part of that is entertaining, right? Because oh, definitely. Of the, because the absence of a negative consequence, you can kind of laugh it off. Yeah. Um, what did you see? I mean, is that has that always been a part? So we've talked a little bit about gear in performing in the risk and how that's developed. What about culturally as an, as an institution, the, the whitewater world, in particular, 
the rafting world because, or, or wherever direction you want to take it. We've talked in the past about the difference between the, the, the cultures of the surfing community versus the um, rafting community at more of an amateurish level. You know, when you get to the professional levels, you know, these big wave riders are masters of risk. You know, they, they've got redundancies and backup plans and inflatable PFDs and helicopters and jet skis and uh, primary, secondary, tertiary rescue protocols. Um, but at a, ba- at a kind of more of an amateurish level, um, surfing is really, you grab your board, you got a leash, you, you go out, whether it's with somebody or alone, and that's the only gear you've got. Swim trunks, hopefully, uh, and a surfboard and a leash if the weather's decent. Otherwise, you got a wetsuit. But in the rafting community, you've got so much, you know, helmets, you've got hand signals, you never go out alone, or you're not supposed to, this is supposed to culturally, it's frowned upon. Um, all the PPE, but culturally, um, how do you see maybe rafting having evolved from those post-trip talks that were kind of informal to, well, I'll let you run with it. Yeah, uh, I mean, just hearing you describe surfing right there, I mean, there's, that's the that's the romance that, that, that uh, you know, like, brings you to uh, for at least for me and I, I think for a lot of people can can see why it's so uh th- there's such a draw to like you know just grab your board and go out you know and that's it um yeah r- i mean rafting obviously functions on a a, a a commercial level of risk management not just like a decision making thing of like do i want to go out this morning or not you know there's there's a lot of people putting a lot of uh their their money their energy into these experiences and and with that comes just like any other big commercial activity the opportunity for success or failure at any any moment um yeah uh i guess like as far as as far as just the the community the way the the way that i've seen it and someone else might describe it differently but because uh, from what i've seen again uh the the industry when you get into that and you when you get into to rafting this this experience of taking people out uh in water that otherwise they would not be able to access on their own and showing them down safely giving them a good time you know giving them a little bit of an adrenaline uh, of adrenaline and then getting them back to you know their family in the afternoon that uh the the way that that ends up being done well is by consistently 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 every day like as you're sleeping as soon as you wake up knowing that you're going to go out there and be better than you were the day before like it's it's very much like someone else might say it's kind of a macho thing and like you know like the the attitude of we're the best we're the best but like from my experience and the way that i've i've spent time in that layer of commercial whitewater you have to be looking at it like that if you're if you're like oh we're gonna go have a mediocre trip today like if you're if your heart's not in it you're you're going to make mistakes that that will eventually add up and and to what consequence who knows it might be someone like breaking a finger or it might be something worse but but like you go out there being like we're the best we're going to go crush it today and your your whole team like on a good day where you're really 
when I say pushing the limits, I'm not saying pushing the limits of like uh, of of risk. I'm saying pushing the limits of like what you're capable of doing that day and like the experience you're capable of giving other people because that's really what it is. You're just giving other people's the, other people this experience they wouldn't be able to have otherwise. Um, you you go out there every day trying to be that superhero. Uh, not uh, uh, I guess that's a that can be looked at. Uh, not as superhero like by yourself, but your team is going to go out there and do something amazing every day. I guess that's the way that you look at it. And and then you come back and you unpack that. You talk about the things that you did well. And yeah, there's a certain amount of like braggadocia with with that. And then, but the the there's also you talk about very succinctly the things that like this did not work. You know, like and there has to be there has to be uh, a level of like humility with that, whether that's also humor that goes along with that. I mean, it just, th that depends on the person and like mm -hmm. how you internalize stuff and how, how close you, that your group of paddlers are together, you know, like it, when it's functioning well and everyone's working well together, then like you can, you can swallow both the, 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 someone talking about how great their day was and also, uh, it, it, you, your own, like my day was great too, but I, could have done better here, you know, just being very, very honest about it, I guess. And, and honest in the good ways or, or in the ways that are easy to be honest about and the ways that are hard to be honest about, but, you know, just having a tight team where people like enjoy doing what they're doing and, and are, are coming back, like, you know, like as cheesy as it sounds, you know, like giving each other high fives, being like, yeah, that was, that was, mm. that was a day we had. And, and I'm glad that you're out there with me, you know, just that, that, level of 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 team i think is is you can't go enough you, you can't you can't say uh, you can't oversell that that there there is no there's no overvalue to that that is it is invaluable i can't you can't put a value on that when, when your team is working well together and that leads to being honest with each other you know about about successes and failures then then you're going to be functioning well when when that breaks down then things go sideways real quick yeah so what i i mean i think about how dynamic workplaces are you know job sites even manufacturing plants when you're doing the same thing over and over potentially you've got somebody working a press break you think about surfing and how dynamic the the ocean is and whitewater river levels features um you know all of that stuff feeds into a matrix that that can push out any number of possible outcomes on any given day because of the un, almost uncountable, unmeasurable um, number of inputs and, and variables that are that are that are there um, to to manifest in some outcome, in some incident, in incident, or in some close call, near miss. And so I think that daily exercise of unpacking post-trip, and if you're doing multiple trips, it's after every trip, is that right? Of talking through with the team, you know, here's what we did well. Um, and I think when I was guiding, it was we'd do a positive constructive. So you talk about yeah, yeah, positive definitely. and then something that you, you, you could have done better and that you could have learned from. And it, and it wasn't always offering it up. It was, it was sometimes somebody in the leadership saying, hey, you know, I saw this line. I saw the spacing as you entered this, this rapid. I saw the lack of communication with hand signals. People were a bit confused. Um, let's work on these. How, here's my suggestion. What do you guys think? Um, and, and I think that, that that helps account for the un, 
innumerable number of scenarios that could play out. You're never going to be all the way ahead of the curve of an accident, but I think the more that you talk about those things and keep them front and center, the more aware people are of the inputs that improve your odds of not having a negative consequence, the, the playbook that allows you to execute consistently at a high level each day that does give you a little bit of the right to kind of stand up with your chest puffed out saying, man, we're really, really good. And that's, to me, that's what performing in the risk is all about. The, the, the idea of safety is kind of an interesting one because it, it almost infers risk-free and nothing is risk-free. And so what I see in folks like you who've been in industry for a long time is this acceptance that risk exists. And the next question is, so how do we set ourselves up to adequately perform in it on a consistent basis? Because as you pointed out, you know, some days a little, a little uh, a faux pas could result in nothing. And then other day it could be a broken finger. And then another day it could be far more significant. So those kind of debriefs seem to be a really critical ingredient of the growth and development and the confidence of the team. But it also takes somebody with humility in the leadership position and confidence in the leadership position to, to mediate that conversation. So in your experience, how, how did you and do you navigate those often tricky conversations? Because not everybody on the team is a star, right? Some people are more difficult to deal with. Um, I, I, I want to, yeah, yeah. That, what you just said, uh, is, I mean, something that we do every day still, and and I can't speak highly enough about it. The the I mean, nobody likes to get sat down and talked to like as a you know like one on one or as as a you know like a training day. Like nobody wants to be when you can be outside and do doing the thing. Nobody wants to be sitting in a classroom and being like explained stuff to. Obviously, there's a place for that, but I find that being like uh as much um uh, what, what's the what's the way to say it uh, uh as hokey as some people might be like oh yeah we have to debrief like positive constructive after every day that takes away time that you need to be sitting down being like this is how to do this this is how mm-hmm. to do that because people are there engaged already and ready to learn from what they just experienced like that just being being a being able to be a leader and be like yeah i know this sounds cheesy but yeah we're going to go everyone has to like my position now owning a company when at the end of the day when i'm like how was today how did it, how did it go how did everything go you know i need a positive and a constructive out of everybody when they're like i can't think of anything that is constructive i straight up just tell them like look i'm paying you to give me a constructive like it can be something that i did it can be whatever but you need to be able to say something that worked hmm. well today and something that didn't work well today um it, and i feel super super passionate about that being able to get in a, a place where everyone's used to doing that every day like makes the team so much tighter it, it, it takes away the need for like, okay, today we're going to, we're going to come in early and sit down and talk about how to not do this because it's, that's built into everyone every day. And when the, the small, as you said, like faux pas come up, that gets hashed out during those like 10 to 30 minute quick talks at the end of the day mm-hmm. where people are being honest with each other and like have the energy to do that instead of being like, Oh, I got to get up early and come in and sit around for two hours and try to remember what it was that we did wrong the other day, you know, like just setting that up. So it's an everyday thing instead of, instead of waiting until you have to like, 
I need to teach these people something that like uh, being a leader that that can say like, look, I, I'm going to make this one about me, like to start it off and like showing humility be like, mm. yeah, I came in here low energy today. Like I, I, I should have, uh, you know, I should have gone to bed earlier last night and 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 come in with a, a better attitude, like being able to like lead with that humility really, really, really pays dividends in how tight the team works together and how much they, how easily they are uh, to be able to be trained and like how they take uh, constructive criticism. You know, when, when you can be there in that role, then they'll respond in kind. Mm. So I think a big part of performing in the risk is recognizing that risk operates in real time. And in, in the world that a lot of the folks live in uh, who are listening, they'll do incident investigations post-accident reconstruction, and uh, in many cases, the results of that aren't uh, uh, available until weeks or maybe even a month or so after the incident. So there's, there's, there's some value in that for sure because you're able to do a much deeper dive because a lot of incidents are, have complexity. So you, you want to figure out all the contributing factors, where they came from, is it within the normal scope of business, or is this something that we can adjust and engineer? Um, but I do see the real opportunity in, you know, we've got monthly safety committee meetings, which, again, have their place. Um, I think where the real opportunity is, is to create a cultural currency around the conversation about how risk performed on that day, like in that moment, because it's real and it's live and there's something about it. It's it's like being a part of the the the, the common, you know, the current narrative. It's It's why... You know, how many people go back and listen to a podcast that happened in the 1950s, you know, or, well, not podcast, but, <laughs> but <laughs> right, you know, it, show, right. it, like people who are interested in history go back and they listen, but most people want to be current, you know, yep. most people want to have information that's relative to what they do. So a lot of companies will do these weekly toolbox talks where it talks about trench safety or personal fall arrest systems, um, you name it, it's the gamut, you know. Um, hazard communication about the chemicals that they're in, interfacing with each day. Um, some of that is rel- relevant, but facts tell, stories sell. I think the story opportunity is really what exists in organizations that in many cases goes untapped. And if it doesn't go untapped, the dissemination of that information is somewhat delayed, enough so that people are on to the next thing. They've moved on. It's a different day. Um, yeah, we know that happened a week ago or two weeks ago, but today, today we got, you know, to deal with what's in front of us. So I, and I couldn't say enough about those positive, constructive debriefs with the team, except one more thing is that starting anything new and breaking old habits and routines is uncomfortable and it's awkward. And I can totally appreciate why people would veer away from engaging in that. But maybe uh, you've, you've put a really fine point on it. So maybe, maybe, this is a bit much, but what are your thoughts on the first day of doing that for somebody who's never done it? I was, that was, that's what I was going to jump in with is that that uh, we we have the the privilege, the uh, maybe not the privilege, but we we have a, a set up in in this industry where where you know there are a bunch of new a uh, new labor, if you will, you know, new guides coming in every spring. And so we're, we're lucky to be able to set that uh, intention, if you, if you want to call it that, as a group, set that, set that habit up as a group early on. And, and it's super, super important to 
have that be the first day. You know, I guess that that's something you said about you know like uh, uh, talking about uh, risk uh, after it happens or or when something that like kind of piques your 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 interest of like oh that was that was questionable. Let's talk about it. We should be ha- like in a place where we're already talking we already have the communication going where that's an easy thing to talk about it's not like um maybe i'll wait till tomorrow i'm not i'm Mm. not ready to talk about that or or like i'm tired today um so yes starting with with the first day on just being open with uh uh, you know even if it is 10 minutes you know like if there's if there doesn't feel like there's anything to talk about i guess that's the point i'm trying to make if there doesn't feel like there's anything to talk about you should be like what's your positive constructive today anyway i mean it can be like uh, as easy as uh, today it was rainy. I didn't like that. That's a constructive, mm-hmm. and then that's reasonable constructive. That that's that gets people in the place where tomorrow, when you come in and and say, you know, it's sunny. I was happy about that. Uh, the the next day when someone, you know, was on a ladder and dropped something, it's an easy thing to say. Like, yeah, I I missed this carabiner lock in mm-hmm. or whatever, and and it's not. It's not like, oh man, now we got to talk about this. It's like that's just something you do at the end of the day every day. And we're uh, in this industry lucky that we get to train folks, a big group of folks at the B, beginning of every year, where where that becomes just habit immediately. Um, so I, I think just yeah, like looking at it as not waiting until you have to do that, even for a small thing, hmm. not waiting to have to do it, but just like being like, yeah, we're gonna spend the last ten minutes of the day. Uh, just getting used to saying, I liked this, I didn't like that. Even if it's a tiny thing, you know, like I like, I, I banged my finger with a hammer. That sucked. You know, that's painful. Yeah. Everyone can relate to that. It makes everyone else seem human at the end of the day when maybe you're not feeling so human, you want to go eat food. Like it, it makes it, people connect again uh, with each other. The team builds a little bit. And then the next day, uh, or 10 days later, when you need to talk about something small, then you're already there having that conversation and everyone's used to it. Yeah, it's a little bit of like, how do you get people comfortable with technology? Get them to use it. Yeah, get them to use it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a great point because so many of these conversations are on a spectrum of severity. And so if you can incrementally creep people up to the, to the capacity for having harder conversations by having easy conversations, that to me just makes a, a tremendous amount of of sense in a way that contributes to people's risk performance, operational performance. There's no question that teams that communicate uh, to a higher degree are more comfortable in that communication, um, have higher morale, and tend to tend to produce more um, and do so with, in a better mindset, which, which also typically reduces the amount of incidents they've got. When they've got their head in the game, on a, on a daily basis, um, that, that's a huge contributing factor to whether you will or won't have incidents. And I think that communication, uh, that communication with your team, uh, that connection with your team brings people's head into the game to the next level or the next three levels as soon as you walk in the door when you have that. You know, like mm. if you're walking into work and you're like, I don't really know half of these people or, or you know, I've never, I, I don't, yeah, I guess I, I I don't know them. I know their names, but like, I don't I don't know who they are. I just go and like work beside them. Like, my head's not going to be nearly as much in the game as in like as if I, I am coming in 
know what I'm going to work with a bunch of my friends, you know? And yeah, it's a little bit like I just flashed to the, the movie, uh, I think it's Remember the Titans, where they've got two groups of, of folks, one at, at the African-American high school and then uh, one at the white high school, <clears throat> and then desegregation occurs and they're forced to play together. Uh, and the coach takes them to camp and forces them to bunk up with one another and just get more comfortable interfacing in and interacting, even though, because I think about the teams that our clients have, like, not everybody on a job site gets along, and right. quite contrary. <laughs> in many cases, uh, there's quite the adversarial you know, uh, 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 type of relationship, but I think the more you force people or you know, set the stage for them to get awkward and be... And actually, be forced to see each other as as individuals, as humans, um, as humans. Yeah. The 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 higher the probability that at the end of the day, if they're honest, and if you if you set the table enough, that it'll it'll create a, a more cohesive team. And so, hundred percent. I think, I think that's all all good. Um, I mean, and and again, going back to this industry, the whole like bravado thing. I mean, there are a huge thing we deal with here is like at that level, at least in whitewater, like is egos, you know, people mm. come in with giant egos and like, yeah, I mean that, that's, that's part of being human and it is what it is. And like people can, there can be a lot of like heads butting up again against each other. But when you set the stage, like you said, of just like be like someone who everyone looks up to, whether it's because they have to, because that's the person paying them or their boss or whatever, or uh, that's the, you know, that's the alpha in the room. That's the guy who runs the biggest waterfalls, whatever, you know, like if that person who's in charge in whatever social way it is, is like, look, we're all about to be human and I don't care. You guys are going to have to do this. Like that is a huge tone setter for everybody else. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you mentioned team a lot and you've worked for a lot of different companies and, and, Tell us a little bit about the the company you run now, Waterfront, and and what you all do, and where you're located, and what the future looks like in that regard. Right you've on. gone from you've gone from sponsored athlete by you know a whole slew of companies who who hilariously pay you to go travel <laughs> around to events and and live uh, live quite the exciting lifestyle, and now you're kind of settled in it at uh, at home. Yeah, uh, yeah, I love being here in Richmond. It's somewhere that that I actively chase down over and over again after coming back from Norway. It's the only only place that has this type of whitewater inside of a city, which it really just draws me back all the time. So yeah, I have a I have a uh, a, a small shop here in Richmond. It's called Waterfront. Uh, we're down at Tredegar. Our our bread and butter is getting folks out hourly rentals um, to just go out and explore on paddle boards and kayaks. Um, and then, yeah, we also do, uh, you know, as far as my passion, like we, we still, we teach whitewater, um, so we can teach, uh, folks in, in kayaks or on paddle boards, how to, how to run anything here in Richmond We start up on the easy stuff, uh, from pony pasture to Reedy Creek, and then move on down through, uh, the, the Reedy Creek through 14th street, uh, bigger class three plus kind of stuff. And then also, you know, um, when when uh, folks want to head out of town and go to West Virginia or you know North Carolina somewhere in the Appalachians, we can we'll we'll take you there and show you how to get down some bigger stuff. Mm. Well, that that reminded me for for the time I've known you, um, one of the things that's been the most important to you has just been to be an educator and a teacher, and so much of uh, that'll be the last time I say because I've said it too many times. Performing in the risk is 
is accepting the mantle of of uh, a leadership position where your charge is to really coach people and teach people and bring them along and share your joy and your knowledge and your passion with them. A big part of what you do and a big part of the responsibility of supervisors, managers, leads, foremen um, out in the field. And so I think a lot of the lessons that you share today and the insight and the wisdom is is born of well, no better place than experience, not academic it's it's clear to me that so much of what you were able to share and convey today is is born of just your time interfacing with customers, with people, with employees, with um, colleagues in a lot of different environments where there's ego, high stress, high risk, and and learning how to navigate all of those things to create an experience for folks that's that's largely positive. Yeah, I mean that's that's the that's the goal. Is uh, I feel super passionate about about getting in water, for whatever reason. Um, that that just was that was given to me by by uh, someone else. <laughs> Who knows? But uh, I love sharing that, and that's uh, on on whatever level. You know, that's what that's what we do is uh, figure out the level you wanna you wanna get to, and and uh, or or that you're coming here with, and and get you out um, at at you know whatever you want to do, whether it's just like floating around in a, in a life jacket in the river and, and putting a snorkel mask on and seeing some fish or going and dropping off waterfalls or going surfing somewhere. We, uh, we, that's, uh, that's kind of what, what ends up happening. Well, uh, we'll wrap it up, but I can't let you leave without talking a little bit about your race coming up. Um, and then, uh, briefly telling us a little bit about dropping off water falls on, on paddle boards. Maybe that one in Norway. Is there a picture available that you can find online of that? It's uh, I, yeah, yeah, I'm sure you could find it somewhere. Um, it's, I mean, it's, I, I don't know, man, like it's, it was a couple of years ago. So, uh, so, uh, it, it got picked up by some, some European, uh, uh, paddle, paddleboard magazines. The, the biggest one was, uh, I think it's called. Uh, stand-up magazine it's out of germany but uh anyway uh, th- yeah it's a it's a uh, like a i don't know a 15 footer um that that uh, it's got a pretty pretty high volume so back when that stuff was first happening i, I like to try to surf myself off of off the top of waterfalls <laughs> and see see what happened at the bottom but yeah there, there's uh I don't know. There's there's lots of different ends to uh, to uh, uh, th- that that experience. You know, it's it's fun to see what works and what doesn't work. Um, and the, yeah, a- along the way, gather the 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 pieces that allow you to put together the puzzle of like what's what's risk and fun and what's risk and you don't want to do it. Mm. But yeah, yeah. So I guess yeah, the next thing next thing uh, other than being down here showing people out on Treader Pool and, and taking and paddling down down the James here. Next thing for me is September, early September. There's a race um, down the Chesapeake Bay. It's a staged race, and I'm I'm doing one of the stages, uh, the one from Cape Charles to uh, first landing. Um, it's like about twenty three, twenty five miles. Uh, across the mouth of the bay, kind of where the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel is, um, big open open water conditions. Um, people have compared it to like the the Molokai to Oahu race as far as the swell and stuff. It's just mm. big, like I mean, it's full on Atlantic open open swell. So it's it's completely dictated by what's going on <laughs> out in the middle of the ocean. And uh, yeah, it, um, just you could call it a flat water race as in it's not white water, but it's, it's definitely not flat water either. It's just dealing with swell for about, 
about three hours, four hours, depending on, on what the mm-hmm. conditions are and paddling across the, the mouth of the bay and, you know, trying to try not to bump into any container ships. Well, <clears throat> good luck with that. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I enjoyed the, uh, enjoyed the conversation. We'll have to hear more about that on another episode sometime in the future where we can get more, uh, more waterfront wisdom. Thanks for uh, taking some time time this morning. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, and uh, yeah, I hope uh, you guys have good days. All right, everybody, thanks for listening in, and we'll catch you next time. Take care.